Okay, let's get this web conference underway. Tēnā koutou katoa, greetings everyone, haere mai, and welcome to the Kōkāko virtual field trip. I'm Shelley, the Learns Field Trip Teacher, and it's 2.15 on Tuesday the 19th of June. This is our Kōkāko field trip, which is supported by the Ministry of Education, the World Wildlife Fund, the Pirongi Te Aroaro Okahu Restoration Society, and the Waipa District Council. Lots of people getting together and helping the likes of Kōkāko and to restore Pirongia. So a good example of how people can do great things if they all work together. So welcome along to everybody that's taking part in the Zoom meeting room. Today, great to see everyone. Kia ora, and a big hello from our ambassadors. We have got Bob, Bob from North Street School, and we've got Maya, the cheeky Kia, my Learns ambassador, who has been looking forward to seeing North Island Kokako because being a South Island mountain parrot, she has never seen a Kokako before, and neither have I. And Wow, we have had an amazing morning with these guys. We've got Claire here from the Purangia Te Aro Aro Okahu Restoration Society and Dave Brighton, who is a conservation ecologist. And with their expertise, we have managed to catch and release two kōkāko. Very, very special. And a little bit uh, misleading, I guess, that we've been so successful after just one morning because it's not easy to catch kōkāko but it's testament to the expertise of these guys and the practice that they've had in translocating moving kōkāko from Puriora to Purongia and that's where we are right now Purongia um, at the moment very kindly hosted by Claire this is her house in Purongia so being a local of Purongia she has felt really strongly about trying to restore the Purongia Maunga back to its former glory and be able to bring Kokako back to the forest. You're going to learn more about that during this field trip. But we've had a very busy morning. You might see that we look a little bit tired. We were up very, very early in the morning to be able to catch those Kokako, to be able to set the net. Uh, Dave prepared the site earlier, a few days ago. Lots of preparation, lots of homework to do and set up the site and we're all up super early with head torches to go and try and catch our kokako. So great to be successful and great to be able to now tell you about it and be able to show you the videos which will be online for you tomorrow. So a big hello to everybody and without too much further ado, we will get underway with your questions. And really good if you can be nice and close to the computer so we can hear you. And great if you can tell us what your first name is so we know who we're talking to. We'll start with Island School. Can we have your question at number one, please? My name is Joanna. When and where do the cocos live? Well, I can probably answer that one. So, Kokako, uh, they uh, sleep up in trees. And that's, that's a good thing because most of the predators, like the, uh, the cats and the rats, uh, they're mostly on the ground. And so the kōkāko are usually fairly safe when they're, nested, when they're uh, up in the trees, except for when they're nesting. And when they're nesting, they're vulnerable to predators. But most of the year, the 
the Kolkaka are fairly safe because they sleep up in the trees. Mm, and then being so high up in the trees made it a little bit more challenging to be able to catch them. And you'll see in the videos how high the mist net had to go. And tomorrow you're going to help set one yourself and you're going to have to get your climbing gear on and use a slingshot to be able to get the net high enough to be able to catch those kokako that like to glide around and hop around at the top of the canopy in the forest. Great question to start. Thank you, Joanna. And now we'll move to question number two from Korokoro School, please. When you release kokako chips, do the the adults hurt them or adopt them? Good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. So we're not going to translocate any chicks. We're translocating the adults, and then we'll also translocate all the young birds, which are the juveniles. Um, so what happens is when we're moving the juveniles around, uh, the juveniles will try and keep a low profile because the juveniles aren't territorial. So the adults will sing full song. The juveniles know that they're not... They're not really meant to be in those territories, and so they'll sort of, you know, just sneak around and, you know, get a bit of a few berries there and get some leaves over here, and they'll just keep a low profile. And if if an adult does come to try and chase them away, then they'll sort of move away. But sometimes what we always, what we also do, aside from just taking adults, is that we do what we call egg swaps, and that's when we all go up a tree when they're nesting, and we'll take some eggs out of the nest, and then we'll swap them. So we'll take them from one spot and we'll move them to another spot and we'll take the eggs that were in that nest and move them back. And that way we're actually, you know, using the adults. They think that they're still incubating their own eggs, but we're actually giving them someone else's eggs. And that means that we can move birds from one spot to another without having to catch the adults. So, yeah, that's a really good question. And if you've joined us on other Learns field trips like the Kiwi field trip, uh, Takahe, Kakapo, uh, you would have learned about the recovery programs that they have for those rare species. And often it does involve uh, effectively stealing eggs and shifting them around and um, shifting birds from one location to another. And you can find out more about why that is a helpful thing in the recovery of a rare species. Another excellent question. Uh, now we're up to question number two from Ilam School, please. Hello, my name is Paige. This is Ivan's question. How many and what sorts of predators were there before they took the kakako off and how many birds did they take away from Purunga? From Purunga, thanks Paige. Yes, I'll, I'll try and answer that Paige, thanks. So um, the predators were possums and rats mainly, and these stoats or weasels, um, ferrets and things like that. Uh, these are animals that native birds aren't used to um, having to defend themselves against, and so you know they're easy prey, they're easily killed, especially the, the young in the nest. So um, the birds that were on Mount Pirongia, the kōkākō, they were declining in numbers really rapidly, and I understand there were three of the last ones were caught at a place near Hotaru, just south of Pirongia Mountain. And they were the ones that were transferred into a captive breeding program in the 1990s in the hope that that DNA wouldn't die out. Excellent. Thanks, Claire. And now can we have question two from Korokoro School, please? 
How many Coca-Cola are you hoping to find and how will you find them? What methods do you use to track? <laughs> okay, well, Dave says that I'm the one to answer this. So um, we have a permit from DOC. Uh, to, to re-establish a, a, a new population on Mount Perongia and to do that we're going to get 40 birds as founder birds. Um, we got 20 last year uh, from Puriora, Waipapa, and we're going to get 10 this year from Waipapa as well and then 14 birds and on top of that from Tiritiri Matangi Island where um, the uh, Perongia lineage birds are. Now we're going to track them um, we're not going to do that using transmitters, that would have been one of the ways we could have done it, but we've been um, advised that that can put a lot of stress on the birds. So we've just released them, um, with, uh, but they've all been banded so they can be identified with the coloured bands, which you'll see tomorrow in the videos how that's done. And in a few months time, we'll get Dave and his team to go back through the area they were released. And what they'll do is they've got recorded bird song and they'll play that. And that's going to get the kōkākō that might be in the area to respond. And then being really careful with binoculars and things like that, Dave's team will be able to identify with the bands what colours they are and so what birds they are. And so we're going to keep a track of them that way. And if you check out the videos that will be online for you tomorrow, you'll see kōkākō being banded and you'll find out a little bit more about those colours and how it helps people to monitor the birds and all the other information that's collected about the birds to help with a better overall understanding of the species so that we can help it more in the future. Thank you very much, Korokoro School. And now question number three from Ilam School, please. Hi, my name is Lucy and this is my question. We saw the different colour bands on the Kakako's legs. What different colours? What do the different colours mean and how do you monitor them? Uh, good follow-on question. Thanks, Lucy. Um, well, the, I, I think, Dave, that you'd be better at this, actually, okay. with the different colours. Yeah, I can explain it. So <coughs> different uh, kōkāko in each population will have different colour band combinations. So each bird released in Parangi will have a separate combination of colour bands. So I think one of the birds that we released today was orange over metal on the left leg, and then white, was it, no, it was yellow over blue on, uh, on the other leg, and the other one was yellow over white. And so each bird has a different combination. Um, so the orange band over the metal band on the left leg, that signifies, that's what we call the cohort band, and that signifies when we are monitoring that the bird was translocated from Puriora to Parongia this year. And then the other two bands are a unique combination. So we have uh, seven different colours of bands. And so we can come up with a whole lot of different combinations. So the worst thing would be if we banded two birds with the same combination and then we'd be looking in our binoculars and we wouldn't know whether it was this bird or that bird. So we make sure that we write a big list down. You know, it's important to make sure that you keep up on your data entry and um, make sure that you don't double up any band combinations that you have. So all the birds last year all got yellow over metal bands so then when we see them this year we'll know oh well they've survived the whole year and then all the chicks uh, that fledged from the nests over the last season they all got white over metal so each different uh, 
group of birds, which we call a cohort of birds, they all get a different combination. Yeah, and with being able to identify birds uh, as individuals, it's a great way to see how they're progressing in their new home to make sure that if you move birds around, that that, that is a good idea and they're being successful, Dave? Yeah, yeah, so um, we just need to make sure you know, we want to work out exactly what proportion of the birds that we're moving are actually recruiting into the population. So that means that they're establishing a territory and finding a mate and then breeding successfully. And then ideally what we want to do is to maintain the genetics of the population is we need to translocate enough birds and then we need to monitor them to make sure that a, a large enough proportion of those birds recruit into the population. So we're not translocating a whole lot of birds. We're translocating 40 from Puriora, uh, and so the aim is we'll translocate these birds first and we'll see how they do. And then if, for example, maybe 30 of them pair up, so we have 15 pairs made out of those birds, uh, then we might say, well, we need to introduce a few more genetics. So maybe in five, ten years down the track, we can translocate a few more birds. But it's really important to sort of, you know, maintain, you know, your data records and make sure that you know exactly what birds are where and you know where they came from. Mm, it's a little bit like when you do a science experiment in your classroom, you can't just <laughs> go and do something and then not uh, figure out what the results are and monitor it over time and see what happens. Um, it's like that with birds, you can't just move them around and then leave them to it. You've got to see how they're going and whether it's a worthwhile thing to, to move more birds or move them to different areas. And now I think we're up to question three from Korokoro School, please. Hi, I'm Maddie and this is my question. Have you used this method of translocation on any other species of bird? Did it work? Uh, yeah, I'm probably the best one to answer that one again. So um, yeah, I work with a number of different species. I mainly work with uh, Kokako, uh, but the other, uh, the way that we're catching the birds using the mist nets is used for a lot of different species. Obviously, using a mist net is set up in the trees and it's uh, quite high, so it's not going to work for kiwi because the kiwi will run underneath the net. So that's not going to be any good. It's not going to work for kākāpō either because they're going to run underneath the net. So it's going to work for all of the birds that will fly through the trees. So it works for kōkāko and we've used it for, for tieke, which is the saddleback, and we've used it for hihi, the stitch bird. Uh, Popocatia, whiteheads, uh, mohua, yellowheads, um, and a variety of other small birds. So we call those small birds passerines. And so those are your, you know, your sparrows, your blackbirds, your thrushes, all of those garden birds. And then you also have your tui. So a passerine is a perching bird, and it's usually, a, you know, what we consider the songbirds. Um, and the kōkāpō is the largest of the songbirds, and it spends a lot of time in the canopy. So that's why we have to have our nets a little bit higher. So if we're trying to catch tieke, then we'll use our lower nets uh, because they're often hopping around near the ground. And uh, whether or not it works, it, it depends on the place that we're putting the birds and also which birds we're translocating. So sometimes if we're translocating birds that are territorial and they're adults, they might fly back to where we caught them from. So there's a case where uh, there were some tomtits and they were translocated to Turituri Matangi Island from Hunua, 60 kilometers away. And uh, they noticed that some of the birds were going missing. And then they went back to the Hunua and there's this little tomtit. There's only a little 12 gram bird and he'd flown 60 kilometers back to the Hunua to his own territory. And it's quite remarkable how 
you know, a little bird, which probably only had a territory, probably the size, size of a tennis court maybe, and he'd managed to find his way back to it. Over, he must have flown over 15 kilometres over the water. But Kōkāko, they're not as good flyers, and so we don't anticipate that they're going to try and fly back to Waipapa. Super interesting. And um, it's, it's always nice to know that the bird has the last say. They, they get to go back to where they came from if they want to. Mm which is interesting. And you might want to talk to your class about, discuss the benefits of translocating and what some of the problems might be, some pros and cons. You could have a bit of a class discussion about that and um, see what you come up with. Now we're up to question number four from Island School, please. Hello, my name is Zoe, and this is my question. We saw an image of a Kokako on a Hinao tree in red about them eating the big berries from the Tawa tree. What other trees and parts of trees do they eat? Sure, I'll answer that one again. So um, we've done a lot of study on uh, Kokako. So we're monitoring the Kokako and looking at what different trees they eat. So before we translocate Kokako to a new site, like Prorongia here, uh, we had to make sure that there was enough suitable vegetation. And to do that, we did a vegetation assessment. And so we have a, a big list of all the trees that the, uh, the kōkāko need. And there's about 88 different trees that they, that they eat. So we're not, we're not going to uh, name them all, but there's some really important ones. So I'll list them. So there's um, the Coprosma grandifolia, and uh, there's also pigeonwood. Uh, and they like to eat both the, uh, the fruit of these two species, and they also like to eat the, uh, the leaves of the caprosma. Um, unfortunately, these two species are both species that deer really like to eat, and also goats really like to eat as well. So as well as making sure that we're keeping the predator numbers low, we also have to make sure that we're getting rid of as many of the goats and the deer that are gonna browse out the understory, because um, yeah, particularly even pigeon wood, um, so the pigeonwood fruit are really important for kōkāko for when they're nesting. So the, uh, the young chicks in the nest, about 70% of what they're going to be getting fed in the nest is pigeonwood fruit. Uh, and so we have to make sure that there's suitable pigeonwood for the kōkāko to survive and for them to thrive and to have lots of offspring. And Dave, you were saying earlier today um, that kōkāko and kereru together play a really important role in the forest ecosystem in terms of um, seed dispersal. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so kōkāko, you know, they're a big bird. So kōkāko, well, one of the, the boy that we caught today, he was 200 and, what was it, 260 grams. So he's a, he's a big bird. That's about twice as big as a tui. Um, and they've got, you know, they've got big gobs too, you know, you can get some big seeds into them as well when they want to. So there's lots of species around, um, you know, you mentioned the tower fruit, that's a, quite a big seed and it's, you know, quite a big fruit and a, a tui isn't able to uh, swallow. And, and it's the same with a, a number of different species which have quite big fruits which are only a kiradu or a kōkāka can distribute. And if you have your kōkāko, then you actually have a, a healthier forest because it means that the kōkāko are eating these fruit and they're you know, moving throughout the territory and they're distributing the seeds as they poop them out. So you, you end up with a healthier forest for having kōkāko in it. 
Great stuff. And I've lost track. Which question are we up to now? Four. Question number four from Korokoro School, is it? Mm. Is it you, Laura? Hi, my name is Pepper and this is my question. When you are relocating birds from one area to another, how do you make sure that the bird you are taking in is healthy, even if it looks healthy? Cool, that's me again. So, um, yeah, so what we do is, uh, it's usually fairly easy to tell if a bird is <laughs> unhealthy. So the kōkāko, they don't, you know, being a, a, a prey species, so historically, you know, kōkāko would have been preyed upon by uh, falcons and hawks and, you know, a raft of different raptors which are now extinct. But those uh, kōkāko which are, you know, look a little bit more sickly, you know, they're not going to be, they're not going to be surviving long because the, uh, the falcons, they'll, they'll see that and they'll target those individuals. Uh, so birds usually do their best to hide if they're sick. Uh, but what we do is um, we can take um, fecal samples and cloacal swabs. So that's a swab on the inside of, of the bird. And it's um, looking at, um, you know, it's uh, gut microflora. And um, we can work out whether it has sort of high levels of, of disease. Um, and we've worked out that kōkāko are usually fairly clean birds. So the thing with kōkāko is because they're territorial, they are... You know, there's only a pair of kōkāko within this area, and there's not a lot of interaction between one pair of kōkāko and the next pair of kōkāko. So if a kōkāko is sickly, you know, it's not going to pass on that illness to another kōkāko that readily. Whereas other species, you know, you see your pigeons, and they and they're all sort of flocking together and sort of communally eating, you know, grain and things like that. And and so there's a lot more sort of potential for diseases to be transferred from one bird to the next. Um, and then we don't really have that with kōkāko. Um, we do do a quick health check when we have the birds in the hand. Uh, and that's mainly, you know, we weigh the birds and make sure that they're not too light. So if the bird's a little bit light, you know, we'll have, sort of have a look and see whether it's sort of in good condition. Um, often, you know, birds that are in poorer condition, they'll have what we call ectoparasites. So there's a little parasites living on the outside of the body. Um, little like flat flies and things like that. So when we pick up the bird, if there's a bunch of little flies that sort of fly up the bird, you know, they like to fly into your bed and fly into your hair. Um, and that's usually a sign that they're, you know, slightly less healthy bird. Um, and usually, you know, they won't have the same glossy sheen on their feathers. They're a little bit dull and often their eyes aren't, you know, as bright either. So there's a variety of ways that we can, sort of, you know, have a, an expert look and just make sure that we're happy with the, the health of the birds that we're transmitting. And in the videos that will be online for you tomorrow, you'll be able to see a health check of our two birds and they were very healthy looking individuals. And it was very nice to see those, those bright feathers mm -hmm. and bright eyes. And um, They were both fatties. Yeah, it was interesting <laughs> seeing them eat banana. I didn't know that Kōpāko uh, eat banana, but apparently they just love it. And mm -hmm. sometimes it takes a little bit of persuading them because they've never eaten it before, but once they get the taste for it, especially the second bird today, mm -hmm. he was right into his banana. Mm -hmm. Loved it, very healthy bird. Thank you very much. And now it's question five from Island School, please. It made out of, and how do you make sure the birds don't get hurt when they are captured? 
Okay, we just lost the first part of that, and that was what is the mist net made out of? And the rest was, and how do you make sure it doesn't hurt the birds? Dave. Cool. So uh, the mist nets uh, that we're using, uh, they're made out of a very thin nylon. So we make sure that they're nice and thin so that when they're hanging in the trees, the birds don't see the net, um, and that's why they fly into them. Um, and we are, what actually is with a mist net, um, these mist nets are imported specifically for catching birds. Um, I bring them in from overseas. The mist net that you'll see in the net in the, uh, in the videos tomorrow, this net was, um, was made in the United States, um, and specifically for catching birds, and particularly large passerines. Um, and what, what the net is, is instead of just being a solid um, piece of netting, like a, a fish net, uh, what it is, is it has um, what we call trammels. And so every sort of 40 centimeters, there's a, uh, a thick line, um, which is very strong. Um, and then the rest of the net, it sort of hangs on these trammels. And so for each trammel that's 40 centimeters, we actually have quite a little bit of net. Uh, and so it creates a pocket. So instead of the bird actually hitting the net and getting all tangled up in the net and you know, having its wing out here and its other wing out there, what happens is it hits the net uh, and then the momentum of it swings the net forward. So it's a bit like you bouncing on a trampoline. It swings the net out uh, and then the, the bird will fall into the pocket which is created by the trammel. Um, as soon as we catch a bird, uh, we'll bring it down. So we have a volunteer at each each end of the net that you'll see tomorrow. Um, and they, it's a bit like, uh, you know, putting a flagpole up and down. So they, they, you know, pull the rope up and then they lower the rope down. When I say down, then there's a bird in the net. Uh, and then we have a, myself, I've probably extracted, I don't know, close to five, 6,000 birds out of nets. Um, you know, I'm pretty comfortable in terms of making sure that we can take the bird out of the net and disentangle it without, uh, you know, causing the bird any grief. And, you know, we've got other experts in our team as well, like Amanda, who you'll uh, see in the videos tomorrow. Uh, and, you know, sometimes, you know, if the bird's all wrapped up in the net, sometimes we just need to, you know, use some scissors and chop a couple of strands just so we can get the bird out as rapidly as possible, just so we cause it the minimum of stress. Because um, we, we just want to make sure that whenever we're doing translocations, like we minimize the stress in every single aspect of a translocation so that the birds are as you know, non-stressed and as happy as they can possibly be when they're introduced into a new environment because we want them to survive and we want them to thrive and feel at home in a new environment. So you can just imagine it would be pretty weird, you know, it's, it's the same as if, you know, we caught you and we put you on a plane, you know, and we blanked out the windows and then we put you in the, uh, you know, put you in a new country, you know, put you in India or, China or the United States and said, oh, you know, make yourselves at home here. And, you, you know, you don't know anybody, you know, you don't know the language maybe, and you don't know what food's good to eat or, you know, whether you should, you know, try this tikka masala or this, you know, <laughs> these burgers over here. And so, you know, it's, it's all about making sure that we can make sure that it's as, you know, as stress-free of a release as possible. Yeah, and from that comparison, you can imagine that it's not something necessarily that the birds particularly like, uh, but it's all about reducing that stress. And even if they don't like it, they're not going to be harmed by it. And it's all about helping the species as a whole so that we can get more kokako. Um, so protecting them from too much stress 
but also protecting the whole species? That's a really good question. And now we're up to the last of our formal web conference questions this afternoon, and that is question number five from Koro Koro School, please. Hi, I'm William David Avery Todd. How, how do you make sure you keep an eye on the Kokako? <laughs> so, uh, how, how we know we. Oh, okay, try again. And how, how do you keep your eye on the Kokako and make sure that they are okay? Good stuff, thank you. Okay, so um, we certainly keep a very close eye on the Kokako. Uh, because as Dave's pointed out, the whole process is to make sure that the, the, the well-being of the bird isn't reduced in any way that we're looking after them at all times. So you would have heard that um, when, when we catch the bird uh, in the net that Dave takes some um, health checks and things like that to make sure that at that point in time the bird is fine. And then when we uh, put it in the capture box, we prepare the capture boxes to make sure there's some lovely soft moss in the bottom, which, they, which um, they're used to. And inside the box, we put um, vegetation, like food that, they, that they're familiar with. And there's a perch in there as well. So they're feeling as, as at home as possible in the box. And the box is also quite dark inside, isn't it, Dave? Yeah. And then, and then we close the box up so we feel that Everything inside the box is everything for the bird to remain safe. We carefully carry the box to its transportation. So we're not going to try and make lots of noises or fall over and drop the box. Uh, we're going to put the box carefully inside the, the, the vehicle that we're going to transport it in. And Dave's usually um, covered the windows up at the back so there's not big, um, you know, really bright lights and things like that. And as we travel up to the translocation site, um, Dave drives very carefully, um, not trying to brake caref um, suddenly and, and trying to avoid big bumps and things like that. And we're very quiet in the car so that um, the bird isn't distracted by people talking or loud music playing, things like that. We try and keep the temperature quite cool, which would be similar to how uh, the temperature would be in the forest that they came from. And then when we release them, again, we're very quiet as we take them to the release point and Dave's um, pointed out the, the right place to release them because the birds live in the top of the canopy. So we've selected a site where there's a sloping tree trunk and it's easy for the birds once they come out of the box to just hop up the tree trunk and they can get right up into the top of the trees where there's um, you know, the leaves and things like that that they feel at home in again. And so all, of, all the points along the way of the translocation, um, we're trying to cover off every eventuality so that the birds uh, are gonna be safe and happy as much as possible and have the best chance of thriving once they get into the new home that we're gonna uh, release them into. Great stuff, thanks Claire. And thanks to everybody that has taken part in our Zoom room meeting this afternoon. I know some people will have to leave for buses and all sorts of things. Um, we did have to make this web conference later in the day because we were out catching Kokako in the morning. But we will stay online for a few minutes more to answer questions because I can see lots coming in. And remember, you can join us again tomorrow for the next lot of questions and an opportunity to ask more questions at the end as well. So.
well done to Island School and Korokoro School. It's been fantastic to talk to you this afternoon. And now we'll move to our informal questions. I don't think we're going to get through them all, but we'll <laughs> attempt to get through some of them. There was one that I noticed popped up while we were talking, and it was a good question about the mist, nest, mist nets. And that was, do you catch other birds that you're not wanting to catch in the nets when you've got them set up? Uh, yeah, often we'll catch other birds. So when we're uh, trying to catch kōkāko, we'll be targeting them. So we'll be playing kōkāko calls. Uh, and so that means that the kōkāko have a, a reason to jump across the net. So you'll see that in the, uh, the videos tomorrow and see what I mean. Uh, but we do get the odd other bird jump through the net site as well. Um, so the nets that we're using, they have quite large uh, gaps in them. So it's 60 millimetres by 60 millimetres is each square. So that's about that big. And so if you imagine a small bird like a sparrow, that can fly straight through that gap. But we do get large birds, you know, blackbirds, we catch a few of them, catch a few tui, a few bellbirds, uh, and we do catch the odd kaka as well, which they're always exciting when you catch kaka in the net and trying to extract that without it trying to, you know, chop your fingers off. So, yeah, yeah I, I bet that is exciting, <laughs> knowing what a kaka's beak is like. Excellent. And do you change the location of the nets if you don't catch anything? Because I wasn't sure that we were going to catch anything this morning, but surprised at how quickly we did. So if you didn't catch anything, would you change location? Yeah, normally we want to give it a, at least a few hours. So Kōkāko will have quite large territories, you know, up to 20 hectares in size. Uh, and the Kōkāko will be moving through those territories. So just because, you know, as long as you select a good site to begin with, so we'll target birds, you know, we'll know that we're in a, a good territory and we know that Kōkāko do jump across the gap that we've selected. Uh, and but if, if we catch those birds, then that territory is then going to be empty. So the other birds, uh, we call them non-territorial birds, um, and they'll move around the, around the areas and they'll find that that territory is now vacant and they'll move into the territory. So it might be two weeks later, a month later, we can go back into the same net site and we'll find that there's new birds in the territory. So we might be able to go back in three weeks' time to the site that we used this morning, and there'll be more birds in the area. But certainly if we have birds and they've decided that, you know, no, they're not going to jump across the gap, they're going to go around and around and around the circles, and they just do not want to go across the gap, then uh, we'll abandon that net site and move to another net site. Usually we have time, possibly in the morning, if we try for a couple of hours and don't have any luck, we can move to another site and give that one a go as well. And when we were planning this field trip, we said that uh, we'd set up first thing in the morning. So by about seven o'clock in the morning, the net was set up and we'd decided that if we hadn't caught anything by 11 o'clock, then we'd abandon the site and move on. And that's a fair old time to be sitting very, very quietly waiting for Kokako, but luckily we didn't have to wait nearly that long. And there's a question here from Corey. Uh, how long do Kokako live for? Cool. I can answer that one as well. Um, so we don't quite know how long Kōkāko live for because the the oldest ones that were banded as chicks are still alive. So they're, they're pushing 25, 26 years old at the moment, those birds. Um, and prior to that, you know, we, we didn't really know too much about Kōkāko. So a lot of the research that has been done on Kōkāko started in sort of the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, and even into, you know, around the year 2000, there was a lot of study to look at exactly what the issues 
were facing, you know, in terms of Kolkata, why the populations were declining in the way that they were. Um, and so, yeah, so, we, yeah, to, long story short, we don't quite know how long the Kolkata lived for. We know that Kolkata are, you know, productive, so they're able to have fertile eggs and have chicks and have them successful for, you know, until they're around 22, 23 years old, and then they start to peter off, and then they enjoy a long retirement. And we're, not, <laughs> we're not too sure how long that is, but probably, you know, less than 30 years, but more than 20. Yeah. It is interesting to to find out that there is still a lot that we don't know about the kōkako and other native birds in New Zealand, and it might be something that you're interested in and something that you could do as a job later on. You might find out more and do research yourself on our native birds. And we've got a, an important question here and one very relevant to this field trip and to lots of other native species as well. Why are the kōkako so endangered? What is the purpose of the blue wattle as well? That, that's part of that question as well. So we'll answer the first part. Why is the kōkako so endangered? Well, I might have a go at answering that. Yeah, so um, again, it's a story that faces um, a, a lot of um, native um, species in New Zealand with the introduction of, of you know, predators from overseas that uh, the birds here weren't used to defending themselves against. Unfortunately, a lot of them face really massive declines. Kōkako really seems to be sensitive to um, taking out of the large um, trees that would have been logged in the early days as well. So habitat loss has been a factor as well. But generally, it, it, it's been those predators that have just preyed on the, the, the nests, you know, the eggs and the chicks. And so it's meant that while the adults have been able to survive, no young young ones have been able to get established here. Yeah, so there's been a lot of science done to identify that and then work out how to improve things. And then the second one about the blue wattle, I mean, I've asked this question too, and as far as I know, there's no clear consensus on uh, whether or not the, the blue wattle actually does any particular um, job um, for, for, the, for the bird itself, that um, there's some stories in Maori folklore actually about uh, Maui and and Kōkako, so you might hear about that uh, when we have the the interviews with local iwi actually. So um, you can um, wait to to hear that story. Um, yeah, but I mean the the fascinating thing that I've found out is that there's a a, a native fungus that um, is also blue and it has the same name as as the Kōkako wattle, and and so you know there's a yeah, there's a relationship between the two blues, which which is really nice. And you might be able to find a, a photograph of, of those blue um, mushrooms or toadstools online. Excellent. And I can see lots of people have left us because it is nearly three o'clock. So we'll leave it there. But if you do have other questions, remember you can join us again tomorrow at the same time to ask more questions. So thank you very much, everyone. It's been a pleasure talking to you from here at Pirongia, and hopefully you can be inspired by this field trip to have a go at some conservation work around the area that you live in. You might be able to get involved in some native planting or some predator control. There's all sorts of things that you can do. So thank you very much, everyone. Do check out the videos which are online tomorrow, and you'll get to see our kōkako that we caught today. So thanks again, and we'll see you tomorrow. Kakite ono. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.
You can unmute your microphones and say goodbye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Catch you tomorrow. And that brings our web conference to an end.